like to give you a little overview here as a introduction. It begins in chapter 21 with this issue of Pashur. Who was Pashur? Remember last week? He was a high priest waiting to do with Jeremiah when he got the word. Beat him and imprisoned him. Right. Now, we get a little more info here. So there's a king, Zedekiah, in chapter 21, who asks Pashur, the high priest, if he could kind of inquire about God and sort of find out what, what God is going to do about the Babylonians. Because the king, Zedekiah, hears the Babylonian threat, and he's a little nervous. So Pashur, high priest, check it out for me, see what God has to say. This is what then led to Jeremiah coming and giving Pashur the word of God. Now, before we get to Jeremiah's response, I want you to see Zedekiah's own ignorance. Look at verse 2, second half of verse 2. He says, Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all of his mercy and make them with problems. Zedekiah's ignorant hope is that maybe God will just deal with uh, Babylon and that God will remove them. Well, Jeremiah then gives the word for Zedekiah, and it is anything but. In verse 4, he says, The weapons of war that you're using will be turned against you. He goes on to say in verse 5, I myself, meaning God himself, is going to be the one who's fighting against you. In verse 7, we see God says, I will give Zedekiah the king over to the hand of the Babylonians. Oh, now we see why Jeremiah got beat, right? Pashur didn't like that message, of course, Zedekiah wouldn't like that message either. He goes on in verses 7, 8, or 8, 8 through 10, rather, and he addresses the people, which is interesting. He tells the people there's it's sort of this classic two ways to live, the way of life and the way of death. But what's unique about this is what I see in verse 9. And what he says is, if you stay in the city and try to fight against the Babylonians, you are essentially fighting against God himself. Meaning, holiness, godliness, in this moment means surrendering to the Babylonians. Sometimes, godliness means surrendering to the discipline that God has brought into our lives. But that's a tough word, though. Now he goes on in chapter 21, starting from verse 11, through chapter 22, verse 10, and he gives them an overview of God's purposes for the kings in the first place. So before he starts talking about the individual kings, he says, basically, let me remind you for the purpose of Israel's government. And I'll summarize for you verse 3. The purpose of the government of Israel was to promote justice in the land. If there was someone who robbed, there should be uh, uh, giving back if they were robbed, and there is to be justice. Secondly, there is to be help and protection to the foreigner or the refugee that lives among them. Thirdly, there is to be help and protection to the widows and to the orphans in the land. And lastly, they are to protect the innocent and to not shed innocent blood. That's the purpose of government here for Israel. That was the purpose of God having kings for his flock, for his people. 
promise is attached to this. Look at verse 4 of chapter 22. He says, If you will indeed obey his word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David. Let's just pause for a second right there. The throne of David. Everybody say, The throne of David. I didn't hear you. Try the throne, throne of David. throne of David. This is important. God made a promise to David. We call it a covenant. In which God said, you will have an everlasting throne. I will keep your throne at the center of my people. And there will one day be a king who does not die. Who sits on that throne and rules with justice and righteousness. He said, if you obey, I'm going to bring in a king who will sit on the throne. But then he goes on with a curse. In verse 5, if you do not obey the words, I swear myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. I think of Israel pictured here as uh, surrounded uh, surrounding this great tree. This tree that is rooted in God's promises, this tree, which would symbolize the line of David. As long as that line of David exists, we're heading in the right direction. We need a king in the line of David to sit on that throne. But what happens to this tree? Well, we see what happens in verse 7. It says, they shall cut it down. Because of Israel's rebellion, in particular the rebellion of the government, the kings, what's happening is Babylon is coming in metaphorically, they're cutting down the tree. They're just demolishing it. There is utter destruction coming from the land, and we see the horror of it in verse 10 of chapter 22. Where he says, we've not to the dead, nor grieve them, but weep bitterly for those who go away. Meaning, look, the people who have died, they're the ones who have it easy. It's those who are being led away into exile. Those are the ones. Then, you want to weep. And just, this just highlights the, the, the horror of this invasion. Babylon and the destruction of God's people. What I want you to see with, uh, however, is what Jeremiah does next here, starting with verse 11. And this is where I'm going to go with my sermon. Starting with verse 11, chapter 21, verse 11 through chapter 22, to the end of chapter 22. What Jeremiah does is, is he lines up all of the various kings and and shows the failure of Israel's leadership. But then he ends in chapter 23 on a high note. Now, I'm excited to get there in just a few minutes. Because what we find in chapter 23 is a prophecy of another king that is a good A king who will rule with righteousness. So hold off. I'm not going to go there yet because I don't get too excited, and so will you. I'm not going to show it for a little Let's do this. Two headings here. First, how does a bad king rule with us? 
And second, how does the good king save us? First, how does the bad king ruin us? There were two men who were arguing, debating. What was worse? The 9 11 attack of the World Trade Center or the Oklahoma City bombings back in the 90s. And so one man was saying the, 9 uh, the Oklahoma City bombing in the 90s was actually worse than the 9 11 attack. But the other dude was like, how can you say that was worse? Like, when you consider the lives of my lives lost, the devastation of property, and uh, the devastation of the economy, how can you say that the Oklahoma City bombing was worse than the 9 11 bombing? Maybe it's true, but his, his, his argument was simply this. He says the, uh, the, the 9-11 attack was done by outsiders, whereas the Oklahoma City bombing was done by an insider. And attacks that come from the inside always hurt worse. Well, what we have here with God's people is actually an attack from the inside. Like, Babylon is not actually the biggest problem for Israel. It's their own leadership that is the problem. And it is the attack that comes from the inside that hurts the most. Looking at chapter 23, verse 1 right here, we see that, that, that phrase, woe to the shepherds. Why? Because they have destroyed and scattered the sheep. In verse 2, uh, he says, like, you are the people that I, I, I gave to tend to the sheep. That was your job. And instead of tending to my sheep, you've destroyed them. You've scattered them. Now this is a summary of all that's coming, or that has gone before. So starting here in chapter 22, we see all these names of kings. It's, it's sort of like a spiritual hypocrisy, if you will. The problem with the leadership of Israel, let me just briefly go through them here with you. The first one, which I already mentioned, would be Zedekiah in chapter 21. Zedekiah is ignorant. He just wants to believe the, uh, uh, all the prophets. The second one we see is, is Shalom in verse 11 and 12. Otherwise known as Jehoahaz, why do these guys have multiple names? Shalom was Josiah's son. Josiah was like the one good king of Israel who ruled with justice and righteousness. His days were cut short. Shalom came right after Josiah and only ruled for a, a few short weeks before the Egyptians came in and took Shalom into exile and he never came back. The second king here listed is Jehoiakim, verses 13 to 19. Now, Jehoiakim was a bad dude. We'll see him again in chapter 36, when he takes Jeremiah's scroll. You know, it's the thing that Jeremiah's been working on for 20 years. It's the word of God. And he rips it up, and he burns it. He hated Jeremiah. He hated the word of God. We see here in the text, the... Uh, Explanation for why Jehovah was such a bad individual. Look at verse 13. He builds his house. He builds this mansion on the slave labor 
of God speaks. Chapter 22, verse 13. In verse 14, we see that he lives in luxury. While everybody else, of course, is living in poverty. He has these spacious rooms. He, he has this expensive paint that he's using on his walls. He has this fancy wood paneling that he's building his house, his house with. I think of prosperity preachers who make a killing off of God's people who are living in poverty, promising things that God has never promised. Now, contrasting Jehoiakim with Josiah, who was just and righteous, Jehoiakim is greedy and he's dishonest. In verse 19, it says that he sheds the blood of the innocent. Jehoiakim was a bad man. Who, by the way, supposedly was a representative of God. Going on in verses 24 through 30, we see Coniah, also called Jehoiakim, also called Jeconiah. Now, the interesting thing about Coniah here, he's, he's, he's interesting in his own right. So Coniah is a dude who actually surrenders to Babylon. He was the last king of Israel, right before the Babylonian, uh, uh, Babylonian took him away in exile. He surrenders in his fight. And he's actually listed in the genealogy of Jesus. What's interesting, though, about this indictment against Coniah is this. Coniah was part of the royal line of David. Remember I said David is important? We've got to remember David, the issue of the covenant of David, the throne of David. Coniah is in the line of David. Coniah is part of this big, beautiful tree. But look at verse 30 in chapter, 20, uh, chapter, chapter 22. He says, write this down. Write this, this man is going to be childless. A man who shall not succeed in his name. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David. We can only imagine the horror of that statement. As he surrenders, he's going off into Babylon, and this man is king in the line of David. God says his ancestors, his children, uh, his, his offspring, rather, will never sit on the throne of David. We see this tree being cut down by the Babylonians, and all that's left is a stump in the ground. It's described for us in verses 22 to 23 as they go off into captivity, as their prosperity is all lost, as they are ashamed and confounded. How does a bad king's ruin us? Listen, bad leaders who represent God ruin Ruin us. I think of today various quote-unquote, Christian leaders who represent God, supposedly, who are leading people astray. I've already mentioned the prosperity preachers. These men and women who stand up and, and claim things that God has never claimed, promise things that God has never promised in his life, messages that are completely void of the life-saving hope of the gospel. 
or preachers who just simply preach their own ideas and their own wisdom as opposed to the slave-ending message of Jesus Christ. But it's not even the preachers that are the biggest problem. It goes far beyond that. It goes to YouTube videos. It goes to Twitter. It goes to various authors and bloggers and people who are Facebook celebrities. People who consider themselves to be Christians. They're representatives of God that are not faithful to the word of God, that are leading people astray from God. Or maybe the people who they distance themselves from the word Christian. I'm not even going to call myself a Christian anymore, they might say. I'm spiritual. I've got more of a connection with God than I ever have when I consider myself Christian in my life. And they're saying things and they sound hip, they sound cool, but really what they're doing is they're like these dudes who are loading up 30,000 kids on the seven ships, just deceiving them, taking them to the land of slavery. There is no hope where these people lead us. And it goes even further than that. It might not even be these people, but it could be a close friend of yours. Or even a fellow brother or sister in Christ who said something wrong. Like they made a mistake. They, they, they applied the text in a way that just maybe they didn't mean to, but they just everyone was just wrong. But they joked in a way that was unhelpful for your spiritual life. And as a result of a close friend or a brother or sister or a pastor, there has been spiritual devastation in our life. Well, what do we make of all of this? I think Paul the Apostle is right when he says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and powers. Meaning Satan uses human beings as his tools. Some human beings use them a lot more. And he uses them in a very far greater way than others. But he uses human beings as his tools. And it's just this whole mix, this conglomeration, if you would, of people and voices and messages. And he, he Satan is a strategist. He's brilliant. And he uses all of this to deceive you. To lead you down a path that is not helpful. To lead you down a path that feels enlightened. It feels good. It feels happy and joyful and right. But the reality is, is that you're walking away from God. Amen. And the end is only destruction. If you're not a Christian, I, I, I say these things not in any way to just simply say that we have something you don't have, some kind of proud sort of arrogantly, I'm saying like, I, I believe this to be the word of God and I'm pleading with you. Look at God. Don't look at these leaders. Don't listen to these voices. But listen to the word of God that has been revealed to us that remains forever. Amen. Secondly, how does the good king save us? All right, let's get to the good part here. So that's how the bad king hurts. Secondly, how does the good king save us? It's baseball season. Ashton's playing baseball, right? Playing baseball? I heard a story about. I heard a story of. 
out to a Little League game, which is a little creepy in and of itself, right? Man walked up to a Little League game and over to the dugout and uh, was talking to one of the kids sitting in the dugout, which is a little creepy, don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> but yes, uh, he asked the kid, he says, um, uh, he says, what's the score? I mean, mine said, how you doing, I don't know. <laughs> so what's the score? And uh, the kid said, we're in the field with the first inning, and he's making it nothing, they're winning. <laughs> and the man said, oh, he said, that must be a little discouraging. He must be feeling a little discouraged right now. And the kid looked at him and said, no, I'm not discouraged. Why am I discouraged? We haven't even got the back yet. We know something. We know something that nobody else knows. <laughs> Listen, friends, we know something that nobody else knows. We have a batter in the lineup that is going to blow your mind. Like, no matter how far we get behind, no matter how much the enemy seems to be winning, no matter how many uh, uh, hacks the enemy has taken at this tree of hope that we have, and he's demolished it, he's destroyed it, all we have left is a stump. We have a hope that you don't know about. The enemy thought he had you. When he led you, by way of deception, into a life of sin. The enemy thought he had you when you started listening to the false teachers who were saying things that didn't line up with God's word. The enemy thought he had you when you gave, once again, into the voice of your addiction and went back down that old path of destruction. The enemy thought he had you when you ignored the grace of God and sought to claim your identity in the good works that you could do. The enemy thought he had you when he crossed this tree down to nothing but stuff. He thought he was with But the problem for the enemy was this. The stump had roots in the soil of God's promises. Look at us. We see this kingdom come as the king is going to come. Look at verse 4. He says, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more. Nor will they be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing. Verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute right up justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell secure. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Isaiah says the same thing, and he puts it this way, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, he says, there is a shoot that is to come from the stump of Jesse. What we thought was our destruction, what Satan thought was his victory, all that was left was a stump in the ground, there was a shoot that was to come from that stump. 
going to grow. The king is And this king is going to carry on the legacy of David. This king is going to fulfill the promises of God. This king is to be born of a virgin who will crush the head of the serpent. This king is going to rule in righteousness. And by that word, uh, by the way, that word righteousness right there has both justice and mercy within it. Which means a king who rules in righteousness is a king who comes with first justice and brings judgment on the oppressor. Which then releases the one, the poor, who is in captivity to the oppressor, thereby bringing mercy to the captive. He is a king who is going to rule in righteousness. He is going to, in verse 7 and 8, bring the final return of God's people out of the greatest exile of all, and that is the slavery, sin, and to death. This king is going to be our redeemer. And he is, by the way, not just any other king, but look at verse 6. He says he will be called the Lord. Everybody say the Lord. The Lord. In the original Manuscript of the original uh, language, rather, it says Yahweh. The king is going to be called Yahweh, our righteousness. Jeremiah is just hinting at something here, isn't he? Like he doesn't spell it out for us. And, you know, Jeremiah is seeing these shadows, he's seeing Jesus at a distance. I don't know if Jeremiah himself even knew exactly the, the way of all that he was saying and writing here, but what he was hinting at is what we see coming, and that is God himself, Yahweh, coming as the king of Israel who will sit on the throne of David in the person of Jesus Christ. The king came. The king came. He's the better king. He's our greater hope. I, I, I don't boast. I can't boast in my accomplishments. I can only boast in his life. I can't boast in my life, my, uh, my, my friendships, my abilities, any of my own powers. I can only boast in who he is. If I brag about anything, I can only brag about his life. His righteousness, which, by the way, contrasting him with the bad kings of Israel, the bad kings of Israel used their power for their own good to bring bring about as much wealth for themselves as they could possibly bring. They took advantage of his people. This king comes and lays down his life for his people. I can't brag about anything, but I can brag about his death. In which in his death, he takes upon himself my exile, what I deserve. Separated, he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? He's feeling the way of exile in that moment. As the wrath of God for my sin comes down upon him on the tree, and he bears that he pick up it. 
I can't brag in anything, but I can brag about his resurrection. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Now check this out. As the king who represents who? God's people. Don't you see how kings represent people? Don't you see that the people, because of the failure of the king, are all brought into exile? The people share in the curse that the king brings upon himself? What does this better king do, this king of righteousness? He dies three days later, he rises from the dead as our representative king. And so if I'm part of his people, then that means I died with him. And if I'm part of his people and I died with him, that also means that I what? I rose. I have hope beyond death. I have hope beyond sin. I have hope beyond the sufferings and challenges of this world because I'm in Christ. Christ is mine and I'm in him. Are you in Christ? This is the question I want you to grapple with this morning. Are you in Christ? What does it mean to be in Christ? How do we become part of God's family? Well, the scriptures are clear. We repent in the We turn from our sin and we trust in the work of Jesus Christ for us on our behalf. Have you ever placed your trust in Jesus Christ? Have you ever cried out, Father, save me through Christ from this corruption of this world? Have you ever cried out and rescue me and deliver me into your kingdom? Run to Christ. Trust in Christ, not in the voices of the world. Trust in Him alone. And what we find is this what a Savior. What a God He is. What a Lord He is. Yahweh, the Lord of righteousness. How righteous He is. And how kind He is to include me. And we are His people. We are His people. We, family, we are representatives of His we together as a church watch over each other and tend to one another. Look what he says in verse 41. He says, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them and they shall hear them. <coughs> On one hand, that could be a direct reference to pastors. I'm going to raise up some pastors, which is what the word is used. I'm going to raise up some pastors who are going to care for my people in a way that kings do not. And I think even more broadly than that, it's a reference to all who are representatives of God. Who are representatives of God, the people of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, what we discover is the priesthood of believers, which means that you are a representative of God on earth through Jesus Christ, which means that you tend to the flock of God. You care for God's people. You work hard in that. Let us be people 
Lord can indeed. Let us steward the opportunities that we have to share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Jesus, to bring the good news to the lost. Let us steward the opportunity that we have to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Let us steward the opportunity that we have to answer unique questions that are being asked today. There are a lot of talking voices. Talking heads, of course, they're talking voices. There are talking heads, there are lots of individuals who are spewing all kinds of stuff. May we rise up and speak and represent the king of righteousness. And may we praise him. praise For it's by his grace that we are There is no other name under heaven given among them by which we may Amen. And that name is Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you know him? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this opportunity we have to be in your word. We ask God to come and take these truths. Seal them in our hearts. I pray that we will go out of this place as representatives of Jesus Christ and dying in a sinful world. In Jesus' name, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.